they're talking about. And so I do sometimes just tell people who email me, could you please just fill out my form? Because then it's organized and I can understand it all. <laughs> I, I have contact information listed there on the website. Thanks for asking, answering all my questions. I do appreciate that. Are you kidding? Thank you for asking me questions. Thank you for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. That's the end of Disability Justice. Since we cannot be fully aware of everybody's difficulties within the community, we would really like it if you would send us your email, disabilityjustice at kboo.org. Disability touches every single kind of person, every topic, every political issue, every beautiful thing. It's it's everywhere. KBOO's Board of Directors is delighted to invite all KBOO members to the annual membership meeting and Board of Directors elections. The meeting will be held on Saturday, September 17th at 1 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater, 2522 Southeast Clinton Street, Portland. A Zoom link and call-in access will be provided to those who are unable to attend in person. This is the opportunity for all members to meet the candidates get station updates, and make their voices heard. Again, that's KBOO's annual membership meeting and board of directors elections, Saturday, September 17th at 1 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm forward slash meeting 2022.
Welcome to Growing Greener, your guide to environmentally informed gardening. Produced in collaboration with the Berkshire Botanical Garden, this program brings you each week some expert who puts you in touch with a different aspect of gardening in partnership with nature. Our goal is to make your personal landscape healthier, more beautiful, more sustainable, and more fun. This is your host, Tom Christopher, and today we will be speaking with Dr. Richard Premack of Boston University. Sometimes insights come from unexpected quarters. When Dr. Premack and his students began studying the impact of climate change on the plants and animals of Massachusetts some 20 years ago, they found an unanticipated treasure trove of data in the journals of Henry David Thoreau. Thoreau is principally remembered as the author of the literary classic Walden, or Life in the Woods, first published in 1854. However, he also kept notebooks of observations made during his daily walks around the woods and fields of his hometown, Concord, Massachusetts. These have provided Dr. Premack and his students with a baseline for their study of changes taking place in the Massachusetts landscape. Dr. Premack, you're a professor of biology at Boston University, and one of the focuses of your research, as I understand it, is to explore the phenology of plants and animals and its response to climate change. Is that correct? That's correct. I'm a, a botanist, and for many years I studied pollination and I studied tropical rainforests. But then, about starting around 20 years ago, my research shifted to looking at the effects of climate change on plants and animals in Massachusetts. Could you define phenology for listeners who may not be acquainted with that term? Yeah, so phenology is the timing of biological events. So when plants flower in the spring, when birds arrive from their migration, when the leaves turn color in the fall. So all the kind of biological phenomena that we see on a seasonal basis, we call that phenology. You said that you have a special interest in research in Massachusetts, particularly, I believe, Concord. And why is that? Well, that's right. So my students and I shifted from studying tropical ecology to studying the effects of climate change on biological systems around 2002. And we began looking around for old data sets because one of the best ways of looking for the effects of climate change is to find old records of the, of the way something was in the past and then comparing that to modern records. And as we looked around for records uh, in Massachusetts, we started encountering a lot of different data sets. In particular, a lot of people record when birds arrive in the spring. But as we were looking around for data sets, someone told us about the fact that Henry David Thoreau, the great environmental philosopher who wrote the book Walden, someone told us that he had recorded when plants were flowering in Concord during his lifetime. And we very quickly located those records, they were actually held at the Morgan Library in New York. And these records that Henry David Thoreau recorded in the 1850s are probably the most comprehensive old phenology records that we have in the United States. So from 1851 to 1858, he recorded the first flowering of more than 300 plant species in Concord. And actually another botanist recorded those same observations from 1878 to 1902, someone named Alfred Hosmer. And then we started making these observations in 2003. So this is the oldest and most comprehensive record of phenology um, in the United States. 
Yeah, I was I was intrigued when I read a, about your research a number of years ago because Thoreau is a is a hero of mine, but more for his philosophical musings than than his work as a scientist. Although I was aware of his journals and that he'd been a he'd spend like four hours a day, didn't he, walking around Concord just observing what was going on. That's right. So he spent a lot of time walking around, and and particularly again during the 1850s, he started being very uh, systematic in terms of making phenology observations of trees, of wildflowers, of birds. And we now, you know, have these records. And people think of Thoreau as being more of a philosopher. And even at various times, people have said that Thoreau wasn't really a scientist, that he was often using his imagination when he was writing down observations of natural history. But this is really just a misconception. It's really just an invalid criticism of his work. In fact, he was an extremely precise observer. He recorded things quantitatively. Um, he made very clear, logical conclusions from his observations. So he, in fact, was an outstanding scientist. And many of his observations, I mean, are really quite original. So he made very detailed observations, for example, on succession, the process whereby an old farm goes back to a forest. So he was really quite an excellent scientist, besides being, you know, an outstanding philosopher. Hmm. You know, I think most gardeners, my my listeners, would understand the urge to record flowering times, but they might not think leaf out times of trees and shrubs in the spring is important. Yet you found them to be of great significance, and, and Thoreau apparently agreed. That's right. So the timing of leafing out of, th of trees has great ecological significance and also has significance for gardening and other things like that. It's significant because when the trees leaf out in the spring, that really provides the starting point of all the subsequent food chains. So with the early leaves and sap provide the first food for insects and for birds. And so it really represents when the forest, when the ecosystem really starts to wake up in the spring. And it's also very important now in modern times, because when the trees start to leaf out in the temperate zone around New England or all across North America, it really represents the time when the trees start absorbing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And as I'm sure your listeners know that it's really the increased levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere produced from the burning of fossil fuels like oil, coal, and natural gas, which really is responsible for the warming climate. And when the trees start leafing out in the spring and, and the trees start undergoing photosynthesis, they start absorbing the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and reducing that level. So the, the growth of trees in the spring is helping to moderate and reduce the effects of climate change. So it also is becoming very important for scientists to study this phenomenon of when trees leaf out. And the trees are leafing out about 10 days earlier now than they were in the time of Thoreau. So a warming climate is not only causing plants to flower earlier, but it's causing the trees to leaf out earlier. It's also causing a different sequence of events, isn't it? I mean, it's not only changed changed the timing of trees leafing out, but it's affected the, the leafing out times of different species differently, hasn't it? That's right. So one of the most active areas of research um, in ecology right now is what is called mismatches, the fact that different species might be responding to climate change in a different way. So in particular, we know that plants and insects are much more responsive to climate change than birds are, because the birds are migrating up from uh, the southern United States or the Caribbean or the tropics, 
And they really don't know that the climate has warmed in New England, and they haven't evolved yet to really adapt to that change. But the, the trees and the wildflowers and the insects of the, the northern temperate zone, like New England, are already responding to this temperature quite dramatically. So there's the possibility that the insects and the plants will respond to climate change, but the birds won't, and they'll be missing the big pulse of insects in the spring, and they won't have enough food to feed their babies. One of the things that we're studying in our research group is the mismatch between trees and wildflowers. We find that trees are actually more responsive to climate change than the wildflowers are. And so it's possible that the trees, by leafing out ever earlier, will start shading out the wildflowers in the spring. That's curious. I, I would not have expected the trees would be more responsive. Well, if you think about it, it makes sense because the branches are out in the air. And as the air warms up, the trees can respond very rapidly to that warming of the air by leafing out. Whereas the wildflowers are below ground. I mean, think things like bloodroot or marsh marigold, buttercups, violets. The plants are below ground. And so the ground hat is full of water. It's very moist. And it has to warm up considerably before the plant can respond by leafing out and flowering. Aha. Uh -huh. Climate change is also affecting different types of trees differently, isn't it? That's right. So, I mean, trees are just one thing. There's a lot of different kinds of trees, and some trees are just more responsible. And as a general rule of thumb, the earlier the trees leaf out in the spring, the more responsive they are to climate change. And if we think about the very early trees that leaf out in the spring, so things like willows and maples, they tend to be very responsive to climate change, especially Norway maples, which leaf out very early, a non-native species. So when we have a very warm spring, those trees respond by leafing out extremely early. Um, another example of a non-native species which is very responsive to climate change is Japanese barberry. Another one would be honeysuckles, the different non-native honeysuckles like Tartarian honeysuckle. And a lot of the native tree species which naturally leaf out late they tend to be less responsive to climate change. So things like the oaks and the hickories, or, and also pine trees, they tend to be less responsive to climate change and won't really be able to take advantage of, of a warming climate as much as these non-native species. So your mention of these exotics that can take advantage of it sounds like a laundry list of invasive species. That's right. So a lot of the non-native invasive species are the most responsive to climate change. So they're already leafing out earlier and they're going to be even more responsive as the climate gets warmer and the danger there is that these non-native species again things like the honeysuckles the privet the um, winged euonymus so these species are going to which are already getting into our forests uh, these species are going to leaf out ever earlier and they're going to shade out the ground and shade out the wildflowers on the forest floor and this is you know a potential problem and something that we need to be concerned about it sounds like it definitely could change the ecology of the Concord Woods. That's right. But you're, I mean, your your listeners are gardeners. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. For the most part. Well, we should talk about about climate change and gardening. Can we do that? Oh, absolutely. If you want to, I'd, I'd like to get back to your research. I still have some more questions about that because okay, I'm fascinated. Okay. Let's talk about the research first, and then we can get to gardening. All right. Very good. Well, I just I wanted to emphasize one thing that you'd said about birds that they have tended to be less responsive to climate change, and in particular, less responsive than the uh, native plants and, and also the insects that feed on them. 
That's right. So, I mean, that, that was a very surprising result. So if we look at, for example, what Thoreau observed. So Thoreau made very detailed observations on when, plant, when wildflowers were flowering, when trees and shrubs were leafing out, and when birds arrived in the spring. And so we've analyzed his data sets as well as similar ones from elsewhere in uh, Massachusetts. And the results are very consistent that birds are less responsive to climate change. So when the birds are leaving Central America or South America or the Caribbean or even Florida, they really don't know what the climate is like in New England. They don't know whether it's a warm spring or a cold spring in New England. And also as they start flying up north, they don't just respond to temperature. So if it's very windy, they don't fly. If it's raining, they don't fly. And so they're responding to a lot of other factors as they fly northward. And you contrast that with, say, trees. In the springtime, all the trees are responding to in New England is temperature. If it's a warm spring, they flower earlier. If, and if it's a cold spring, they flower late or they leaf out later. It doesn't matter whether it's windy. It doesn't matter whether it's rainy. I mean, it doesn't matter what's happening in Florida. They just simply respond to the climate of their local environment. So they're just only responding to temperature. And so they're much more responsive to that one environmental factor. So a lot of species of songbirds are very dependent on uh, caterpillars as food for their, their chicks. And they're, they had evolved to, I guess, arrive and nest and, and lay their eggs in close in sort of coordination with the appearance of certain caterpillars but if the caterpillars of the insects are responding to climate change and appearing earlier that that could be a real problem for the birds can't it that's right so insects i mean the songbirds are primarily insectivores uh, insect eating when they arrive in the spring and you know there's a concern that that the birds might arrive and they might get enough insects feed themselves, but by the time they get around to laying their eggs and then fledging their, or feeding, feeding their, their, their hatchlings, that there won't be enough insects around in a great abundance, that kind of first pulse of insects in the spring to really give enough to feed their, to, they won't be able to find enough insects to feed their, their nestlings. And this is a very active area of research. It was actually proposed about 15 years ago uh, by some researchers, um, um, in Belgium. And it's actually surprisingly hard to get evidence to confirm this. So lots of people are looking for this. Lots of ornithologists um, are looking for this uh, phenomenon of birds being mismatched with the insects and the plants. It's very hard to actually get in evidence for this because it's very hard to actually detect what birds are eating. Um, and they always chew up their insects and they're sort of swallowing them, feeding to their, their hatchlings. It's surprisingly hard to get good evidence that um, that birds are being mismatched with their insect food source, but it's something that people are very actively looking at at the present time. What we do know, though, is that temperature effects are pretty strong in terms of affecting birds. So there are very good studies, for example, in California, showing that when birds arrive um, at the same time, but the temperature has gotten warmer, that it sometimes too hot for the the adult birds, and it's especially too hot for a lot of the nestlings, and a lot of the nestlings wind up just getting overheated or, or dying of thirst. So climate change directly affects birds without having to think about this phenomenon of mismatch with their food source. Ah. 
Dr. Premack, I need to interrupt our conversation to remind listeners that this is Growing Greener, a weekly program about gardening in partnership with nature, coming to you from the studios of WESU-FM in Middletown, Connecticut. Today we are speaking with Dr. Richard Premack of Boston University about his research on how wildlife is reacting to climate change. Plants react to a variety of signals to time when they come out of dormancy in the spring, don't they? So temperature is only one of them. Temperature is only one of them. So there really are three main factors which affect when plants in New England, and I should say, Tom, this is, is your audience primarily a New England audience here? Uh, it's, it's actually spreads far outside New England, but, but let's focus on New England since that's been the focus of your research. Okay. I mean, I can talk about other places also. Okay, well, that'd be good I mean, too. I mean, in New England, plants are mostly responding to three phenomenon or three kind of environmental triggers. They're responding to um, winter temperature. So plants have to go through a cold period during the winter, which is called the winter chilling requirement. But here in New England, plants get plenty of cold. They don't have to worry about cold. There's enough cold in New England uh, for them in every year. Uh, but they, it means that this is, because they have to go through this cold period, it means that trees don't more immediately leaf out and flower in uh, February or early March just because there's a, a week or two of warm weather. So plants have to go through this prolonged period of cold weather. But certainly now, during the um, toward the end of March, they've had plenty of, of cold weather. And now what they're waiting for is a period of warmth in the spring, um, which is called the, the the spring forcing requirement. So they have to get a, a period of warm weather, generally a couple of weeks of warm weather, and that will trigger them to start leafing out and flowering um, in the spring. So those are the two things that, that the main phenomenon, they have to go through the winter chilling requirement, and then they have the spring forcing requirement of, of warm weather. And then the third factor, which they, they may need, but to a much less degree, is they need longer days. They need a, a long day. And this is referred to as a photo period requirement. So they need the days to be longer than about 13 or 14 hours and increasing in day length with successive days. But this is a much weaker requirement and a lot of plants probably don't need it. So the main requirement that really triggers the variation from year to year in whether it's an early spring or a late spring is really the warmth in the spring. spring so the spring temperatures are overwhelmingly the most important factor um, in New England in terms of whether it's an early spring or a late spring. Temp or the amount of water or precipitation is never a factor because in New England, the, the ground is always moist in the spring. So we always have this phenomenon of, of the ice and the snow melting and then also spring rains. So there's, there is never a time of, of, of of real drought in the spring in New England. The ground is always moist in the spring. And this is quite different from the autumn. In the autumn, there's a lot of factors which determine the end of the growing season, when the trees start shedding their leaves, when the wildflowers die back, when the insects uh, go into hibernation, and when the birds leave. It's a, it's a much more complex interaction of temperature, drought, precipitation, wind, first frost events, disease, all these things contribute to the end of the growing season, but the spring is all about temperature. Uh-huh. You, you and um, your students actually explored the forcing requirements of various plants. Is, I, I think I picked that up from one of your papers. 
that you brought in, you cut branches from various trees and shrubs and brought them in and, and saw how they responded. That's right. So this is actually um, something that I think that I was kind of pre-adapted to do because when I was growing up, like a lot of people in, in our family, this time of the year, we cut branches of dormant twigs. So all of your listeners can go and do that. You can just go out there and clip uh, branches of forsythia or um, uh, flowering pear or crab apple or cherries. You can just clip dormant branches this time of the year, bring them inside, and then put them in a vase of water. And in a week or two, the, the flower buds all start opening up and they you'll have this beautiful display of flowers inside a couple of weeks earlier than outside. So this is something that, that I did growing up or my parents did for us. Um, I did it for our children. And this is exactly the same technique that you can use to investigate the requirements that plants have for leafing out and flowering. So in the months of January, February, March, and April, you can go out and cut dormant twigs with clippers or, or you can cut them with a sharp knife and you bring them inside and you see whether they leaf out or not or how long they take to leaf out. And what you find is that if you bring in dormant branches or what my students and I found out is if you bring in, if you cut dormant branches in January and you bring them inside, they either won't leaf out or they just, you know, they take a real long time before they start leafing out and flowering. They may take a month or more. But this time of the year, if you go out and you cut crab apples or um, flowering pears or cherries and you put them in water, um, they will start leafing out within a couple of days, start leafing out and flowering within a few days. So that tells you that in January when you cut them, they still hadn't fulfilled their winter chilling requirements, but now they have, and so they're ready to go. So if you bring them into a warm place in your house, they will start leafing out and flowering very quickly. But if you, you know, you want to do an experiment and you, besides bringing them into your warm house, you put them in a cold basement or you cut them and then leave them outside where it's still pretty cold, you'll find that they, they won't start leafing out and flowering. It's really that warmth in your house, which tells the plant that it's in a warm spring environment that triggers them to start leafing out and flowering. One of the, this, this is very interesting and it sounds like a great project. I've got to start exploring that myself. But one of the effects of climate change has been well, it's it. You know, we we speak about global warming, but it's also created sort of disturbances, a lot of chaos in local climates. And if I read your papers uh, correctly, one of the side effects of this is that there's still late spring frosts, and this can be devastating for plants that have been encouraged to to come out of dormancy early and then run into a late spring frost. That's right. So climate change has a number of unexpected effects on, on plants and biological systems. And so one effect that we have, particularly in New England, is the fact that uh, we'll have this warm spring. So we'll have some years in which there's a lot of warmth in the month of March, for example, in a way which didn't occur as frequently in this region. So plants will start leafing out will start flowering, um, insects will start coming out of dormancy. And, and then we'll have a spring frost, particularly when the jet stream dips down into New England. We've had this several times in the last few years where the, the jet stream brings down temperatures in the 20s uh, into the region. And it winds up just killing all of the flowers and the uh, young leaves 
due to a hard frost and it winds up killing the insects as well. And so in, in years when this happens, for example, if the apples are all starting to flower, the flower buds are killed by this late frost. And this means that there's not going to be any apple crop because the plants only make their flower buds in the fall. And if the flower buds are killed by a late frost, that means that, that there's just going to be no apple crop that, that year. So this is a very serious problem for gardeners. It's also a serious problem for natural systems. So, I mean, if the blueberry bushes have their flowers killed, the wild blueberries, you know, there's not going to be any flowers for the insects to pollinate. There's not going to be any berries for animals, birds and other animals to eat later on um, in the year. So this winds up kind of disrupting um, systems. We also can have this phenomenon happening later in the year also. So because of the higher temperatures, um, the forests of this region are much more susceptible to drought uh, in, in July, August, and September. And about three years ago, we had a very severe drought um, where we had the combination of high temperatures and a period of several months with very little rainfall. And this caused you know, just massive disruptions in our forest. A lot of the trees had their leaves die, change color, and fall in August rather than in September or October. The birds left the area early, and there was just a large die-off of, of insects in the, in the forest. So these are all kind of examples of ways in which climate change is having, you know, a severe effect on our forests. Is there a role still today for citizens, scientists like uh, Henry Thoreau? Yes. Yeah, so we're actually, we're in a golden age of citizen science right now. So it's a very exciting time. I mean, I mean, I think it's it's a very a very frightening time we're in because the climate is changing and this will have serious consequences to the environment of the world. But it's also a very exciting time to be a scientist because we're actually seeing the world changing in front of us. So it, it represents um, a time in which scientists have a very important role to be documenting these changes and also to be testing uh, different hypotheses about whether species can be mismatched with each other in terms of their timing. And so for people who are not scientists, it's also a very exciting time to contribute observations to these large international projects of monitoring phenology. And there's a lot of ones, a lot of these um, programs really encourage participation by everyone, uh, whether you're a scientist or not, whether you have training in science or not. So. There are a lot of these international programs that are very easy to find. One of them is called the National Phenology Network. So the National Phenology Network, also called Nature's Notebook, um, encourages people to make observations of flowering times, of wildflowers, leafing out times of trees, observations of birds and um, insects. Another one is called eBird, which is specifically for bird watchers. Um, and that's an extremely effective and very user-friendly method um, where people contribute their, their own observations of birds to this national network. Called, again, it's called eBird. And then another really great one uh, is called iNaturalist. And iNaturalist is, a, is a, uh, an app for a smartphone which allows you to identify the plants that you're seeing. And by people identifying the plants that they're seeing. You just take a, a photograph of it with your smartphone and it tells you what the name of it is, but it also means it winds up documenting that a certain plant occurs at a certain location. And so the all three of these different um, citizen science programs 
allow people to get involved in these big national projects um, and also contribute to scientific efforts and, and allow people to learn a lot about plants and animals. Well, I was looking forward to talking